As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Welcome to the Gravity Leadership Podcast, where we explore how to center our lives and our leadership in the love of God revealed in Jesus Christ. In the midst of the disruptive cultural shockwaves of the 21st century. Join us as we learn to take the love of God seriously as the force that holds all of us and everything together. Hey guys. Hey. Greetings. We are, listener, for your information, uh, we are recording this on the day of Epiphany, the Feast of Epiphany, January 6th, mm-hmm. comes around Woo-hoo. every year. Um, and I have a question for you, Christy. Yes. You might be able to guess what my question is. Christy, uh, listener, if this is your first time listening, you will not know this, but uh, longtime listeners will know that Christy has uh, very unique and creative ways of celebrating different holidays with her yes. family including like, what is it, like green pancakes on St. Patrick's Day and things like this. Uh, anyway, so I, I wonder what y'all do, if anything, for Epiphany. Do you have a, an Epiphany yeah. celebration that you do with your family? Okay, we do. So okay. first of all, all my Christmas decorations are still up. But yeah, of course. Not, that, we don't take you, them down because this is still Christmas. Yes, it's the end good. of the Christmas 12 season. 12 days of Christmas. So all my stuff is still up. So um, yeah, the two things that we do is one, we do a door chalking. There's like a liturgy for door chalking. Maybe we can even post it or something. I don't know. Um, But we like take chalk and there's like a blessing and we pray together and we kind of chalk these letters on our door that is really a blessing for our home and for our family for the whole year of 2023. Mm -hmm. Um, And then we make a king's cake, which like a little tiny baby, make a cake, put it in there. baby Jesus. Yep. And then we like decorate it and then eat it. Um, and so, yeah, those are the two things that we do. And it's it's fun. I did not do this. And like six years mm-hmm. ago, this is kind of a newer thing, mm-hmm. um, understanding liturgy and church history and all the all stuff. I do, yeah. although this year was the first year that I took the wise men from my nativity and I put them in another room. Like my nativity like is in the, the whole- living room for the okay. whole season. Okay. So they only nat- approach – Today. <laughs> right. But I Jesus. actually bought like, okay, so I have the willow. Those of you who are listening, maybe you know. Um, mm-hmm. I have the willow tree, like, I think it's called willow tree, uh, nativity. And so it's all in my living room except for the wise men are in my parlor. And this year I bought like a mom with a toddler baby and put it with the kings. <laughs> <laughs> Paul's like, what are you doing? I'm like, this is like 
Jesus at like 18 months with the Kings. Um, 18 months. You know, you know. get the historical. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's so funny. Um, so. Put him in the other room. I love that. That's really great. Yep. Um, do you guys do anything? Uh, we have begun to chalk our door the last few years. Same as you. Okay. We, we didn't really grow up. I didn't really grow up celebrating Epiphany, but we have, and we, we can, I actually put a link to this in the curated links, the gravity curated links. Listener, if you don't get our emails on Friday, oh. you can join us at gravityleadership.com slash join. And you'll get an email every Friday with cool things like how to chalk your door uh, during Epiphany. Anyway, uh, this has been brought to you by, um, <laughs> no, but, uh, but yeah, we do that. And then, um, and you can do this, by the way, listener, if this is the first time you're hearing about this, you can still do this. You don't have to do it on the day of Epiphany. You can do it ar- around the day of Epiphany. It's kind of like a New Year's blessing for your home. Yeah. So yeah, we'll put links to that. That That's about all that we do. Okay. Um, no Matt, fun you, food. Uh, you know what? You, you saying king cake reminded mm-hmm. me that the last couple years we have had kind of a, a, a party for our leadership team around Epiphany. We're having one tonight. Okay. And I am now thinking I'm going to head out to the bakery to see yes. if I can grab a king cake. Because those are just, they're delicious. And, uh, and there's a little creepy baby inside. So. <laughs> Who gets yeah. the no, creepy so. baby? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Matt, do you do anything? Uh, for, for for Epiphany? Yeah. Um. Well, it's January 6th, you know. And you wear all gold? I think... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's really distracting. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I, I I think I'm going I think I think I'm going to propose that we rename uh, Epiphany the Incarnation Insurrection. <laughs> um, no, uh, well, we're having a party tonight. Mm-hmm. We're having an Epiphany party. So we so at our church, you know, um, it's fashionable. The, all the kids are having holiday parties, you know, in December uh, for Christmas, right? And it's kind of end of the year celebration. A lot of churches do this. A lot of businesses, you know, office parties, that mm-hmm. kind of thing. And we've just uh, kind of noticed that that's just a crazy time for people. Sure. And schedules yeah. are packed, and people are uh, kind of stressed out. So we've the last few years have delayed our holiday party to Epiphany. Oh, nice. As kind of a post New Year um, kind of party, because you know, when when you live where we live, Christy. In the armpit of America, uh, the sun goes down around four o'clock. Doesn't come up until ten, ten thirty in the morning, and you're in a long slog through winter from like the beginning of January to you. You want to say March, but March is always it's April. March is yeah. always a uh, tease. Mm-hmm. Always, yeah. Um, so really, it's like best case scenarios: two and a half months. Usually, it's like four months. Of just mm-hmm. drab, dark, dreary, depressing. Whew, hopefully, everybody took their Xanax this morning. <laughs> Listening to really me, like winter. Listening buddy. to me. Anyway, all I have to say is, we need a little. We need a little light. A little yes. light in the new yeah. year, and so we're doing a party. When we've done yeah. that, Ben, I don't know, the last five years, maybe. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I, I can't remember how long it's been, but but yeah, I think if I'm remembering correctly, didn't your wife win the the baby? She didn't she get the baby last time? I remember putting She's, a crown on did. her. We had some like chintzy jewelry that we dressed her up in. It was she was the king? Yes, for the she day. did. It was fun. She did. Uh, That's Sharon's favorite thing is having attention drawn to her. <laughs> yeah, lots of pictures and wearing crowns wearing and crowns, gold right. and things, <laughs> parading around the neighborhood. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh my goodness! Well, she fun. Loved that. Yeah. So yeah, 
that it is fun. We'll probably chalk our door uh, sometime today. Um, and yeah, I have that party tonight. I'm looking forward to it. It's going to be a lot of fun. It's good. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. We did a, we did a fun interview. We did. Yeah. This was before epiphany. This was back in the, I don't know. It was a couple of weeks ago. It wasn't that long yeah. ago. No. And Seth Richardson, the, the, <laughs> uh, I told the guys, I told Matt and listener just between you and us, you, you, you and me, uh, the, uh, I told Matt and Christy that, well, Matt challenged me to try to use the word ostensibly three times during the intro of this podcast. <laughs> and I was about to say ostensibly Seth Richardson joined us, <clears throat> but that wouldn't make that sense. Makes no sense. But here's the good, good thing about using words like that is that mm-hmm. very few listeners would know it doesn't make sense. They just be like, Oh, yeah. that's a, that's a power word. Oh yeah. That guy's Seth really is smart. Awesome. We just, that guy must be super what it smart. Means. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, yeah. Seth he joined would, us. Seth, who is actually really smart, would completely roll his eyes uh, mm-hmm. at this intro. So, mm-hmm. yeah. so what I'm saying is, ostensibly, you could use ostensibly, and Osten- people yeah. wouldn't know yeah. if you were using yeah. it correctly or not. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Okay, I could well, use ostensibly, per- ostensibly, and thus Listen. completes my three times. So. <laughs> if we, challenge this completed. Is, if we have listeners like me, they're yeah. like now looking in oh, at the source as to what does this mean? What does this mean? I will say, being serious, I, what's going on? I will say this: Lisa Weaver Schwartz deserved a much better intro than this. She did. <sighs> she she yeah. did because I, uh, I, yeah, our conversation. <laughs> I felt good about it until we started. You know, I, I apologize. I apologize. I took us down a wrong, a wrong path. Lisa, I'm sorry. No. This, but uh, this was a great interview. Yeah, Lisa, it's not our worst intro. So we, you've got that going for you. Yeah. <laughs> we, have a, we have them ranked. Uh, no, we, we, we chatted with Lisa today on the podcast uh, about her research and book, uh, Stained Glass Ceilings, How Evangelicals Do Gender and Practice Power. I love that subtitle because it automatically opens up new categories for most of us. How evangelicals do gender? What do you mean do gender? And practice yeah. power? What does that mean? Yeah. Um, this book is yeah. is great. The conversation, I feel like we could have talked for six hours. There's so mm-hmm. much to explore. And uh, Seth Richardson um, joined, us. joined us. Yeah. Yep. He had some it incisive questions. One of our listeners actually reached out to me like maybe two or three days after we did this interview. And they were like, hey, have you heard about this book? And it was her book. And they're like, you should interview her. You should read it. And I'm like, we just did. It's coming out in January. So, um, yeah. So our listeners, I think, are excited for this too because someone reached out and said, do it. And we did. Yeah. Yeah. It's right up our alley. Um, It's really uh, helpful research that kind of gets beneath the surface of things because I I love that she – does this research at uh, two seminaries. One is ostensibly egalitarian. <laughs> Sorry. One is, oh, one is uh, officially egalitarian and the other one is officially complementarian, but she shows how that doesn't uh, resolve uh, all the issues about how yes. evangelicals do gender. So yeah. parenthetically, Ben, uh, she, she does... Ostensibly parenthetically. She but, does yeah. argue that Asbury is ostensibly an egalitarian institution, <laughs> meaning right. purportedly, yes. yeah, yeah. but yeah. not in reality. And she shows how, right. she shows how like uh, all, all of our conscious, intended, uh, explicit theology gets thwarted or subverted or undermined by the way that we embody 
gender, the way that we yeah. uh, institutionally organize, the way that we, the, mm-hmm. the way our imaginations are set up, our habits, our uh, yeah. uh, the the architecture of our social relations, and we're not used to talking about this in the church, mm-hmm. right? right? If you've got if you've got the right theology, if you you know if you support women in ministry, then uh, you're good to go. Then, and I know there's women pastors listening, but you've run into the wall the stained glass ceiling of, yeah, we support women in ministry. And then you go work at a church and you're like, holy hell, what is going mm. on here? Yeah. yeah. Uh, you know? Why do I keep getting asked where my kids are? Yeah. <clears throat> anyway. Right. Yeah. I think that's, that's why a- the word ostensibly came up in our discussion. Cause I was, cause I was like, yeah, it's ostensibly. Anyway, it's a great, it's a great interview. And I, I want us as the church, as Christians to be doing more and more of these kinds of conversations. So, Hopefully this helps you, listener. Yep. All right. Yeah. All right. Well, let's get into it. Let's do it. Um. Welcome to the Gravity Leadership Podcast. We're joined today by Lisa Weaver-Swartz, who holds a PhD from the University of Notre Dame in sociology. She currently lives in Kentucky, where she teaches sociology at Asbury University and writes about gender and religion. Speaking of her writing, we're talking to her today about her new book, Stained Glass Ceilings, How Evangelicals Do Gender and Practice Power. Lisa, welcome to the podcast. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Uh, speaking of gender and power, we're also joined today by Seth Richardson, who works for Gravity and the Congregational Transformation uh, Institute Group Initiative Program Woo-hoo. Resource. It's all those things. And Seth, <laughs> Seth has written on gender and power as well, and he's very interested in this book and in Lisa's project. Seth, welcome back to the podcast. Hey, thanks. I'm really excited to be here and to be on this end of the microphone. <laughs> <laughs> and as always, Christy, Pastor Christy, joins us oh, as well. Boy. I'm here. Yeah. I'm here. Glad to be here. Um, Lisa, we want to get into this book, which is a book that takes a look at, uh, for the most part, two institutions in Kentucky, right? Um, Southern Seminary, which is in, I think, Louisville. It is. And then Asbury Seminary, which is, you said, across the street from Asbury University, but is not related at all. To Asbury Seminary, right? So no conflict of interest here. You looked at these two institutions. One's a complementarian institution. One's an egalitarian institution about how gender and power works in them. And we're going to chat about that today, about the things you found out. But first, let's get to know you a bit. Yeah? Introduce us to a bit of your story. Tell us uh, how you grew up, where you grew up, how Christianity became important in your life, and, and then how you got interested in doing research about gender and power. Mm. Yeah, so I you know, I really don't remember a time in my life when religion wasn't important to me. I grew up in a very kind of faith-saturated community and, and context. Uh, I grew up Mennonite uh, by, by both birth and, and now by conviction. And my, my home community was one that still had a lot of threads of, of kind of ethnic identity uh, woven into it. So uh, I grew up with a lot of kind of Swiss German and, and Russian Mennonite foods. I have memories of of my grandparents singing hymns in in German and talking to each other in Pennsylvania Dutch and talking a lot about the history of the Radical Reformation. And so all of this kind of 
gave me a, a sense for a kind of countercultural um, identity in, in ways that, you know, the Mennonite tradition has on emphasis on simplicity and peacemaking. Um, but it also kind of, you know, mixed that, that cultural identity with religion for me. Um, so that was that was an important part of my upbringing. But I also grew up in a time when a lot of Mennonite communities, including mine, uh, were were very much influenced by more fundamentalist evangelicalism. And so I, I definitely grew up um, not in the center of of white evangelicalism, but de- certainly evangelical adjacent uh, in a lot of ways. So I was very very much aware of what was going on. Um, out, out, outside the Mennonite community. So um, yeah, I have memories of there was a, a rapture timeline poster on the Sunday school room wall at one point. And I don't remember that we did much with it, but it was there. And you know, I knew who Ken Ham was, listened to some CCM music, even though my parents weren't crazy about that as a genre. Um, but a lot, a lot of Christian radio, sort of the the trappings of, of white evangelical subculture during, during what would have been in the 1990s. And so I think the benefit for me of, of growing up kind of straddling these two worlds is that I, I was very much aware of and, and conscious of uh, some of the political and, and cultural trappings of evangelicalism, but I didn't really get the hard-edged kind of doctrinal emphasis, the, the kind of apologetic stuff that a lot of others did get around that time. And instead, my religious experience was was much more framed by things like like the food. I always also always mentioned the food and music. Um, and then I used to do a great job of, of singing hymns in, in four-part harmony, which I, I still mm-hmm. contend is uh, the most underappreciated symbolic articulation of, of egalitarian, non-hierarchical community life. Um, and so I, I grew up with, with these things, the food, the music, the, the embodied kind of intentional community uh, relationships that uh, that that framed our world, and I did get some biblical literacy from um, from that point in my in my life too. And so I think this this package that I that I grew up with um, really does influence the way that I look at religion now sociologically, because I know the power of this kind of subcultural identity work, um, even even to the extent that I mean more more um, in a, more of a contemporary part of my journey. I've like so many others have who grew up. In, in the evangelical subculture in the 90s and, and since I've had to kind of unpack some of the messages and beliefs and and packaging and posturing that I, I got from that community. And as I, I look at, at my own uh, journey kind of out of and away from from certain parts of that, I, I think it really was the cultural forms, the, the music, mm-hmm. the artwork that uh, drove me to find better stories in the biblical text and even in my own tradition and have, have yielded a, a more robust belief. So I'm really personally grateful for the the importance of, of culture within my religious biography. Um, and I think certainly, I, I, I didn't start out to write a book about material and visual culture, but I, I probably shouldn't be surprised that that is yeah. what I, I found and, and really that, that jumped out at me because it, it is a part of, of my own story. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you... I want to point this out. This is so helpful that, I mean, even before we started, um, you are a doctor. You got your doctorate. I asked you if I if I should introduce you as Dr. Lisa uh, Swartz. <laughs> and you said, well, I'm Mennonite. And so we don't really like hierarchies or to hold, you know, to lord it over people. And so there is this communal embodiment of power in the Mennonite tradition that's in tension with the academy, right? Where there's a doctor and she's elevated or he's elevated. But I think that gives you 
like those frames and that upbringing gives you a unique uh, outsider but adjacent perspective on the things you were researching. So it wasn't like this is totally alien. There's so much familiarity, but then there's things that are just different enough to trigger what you're noticing. Yeah. Yes, definitely. I think, I mean, I've, I've, sociologists think a lot about positionality, right, of the, you know, the experiences and the, the standpoint of the researcher and how that affects what, what you find even, right, which, you know, we, we've kind of, I think, a lot of times assume that there's this kind of uh, disconnected even ob- objectivity that researchers bring to projects. And, and I just don't think that's ever true, right? Because our experiences do shape so much what we know and what we can see. And and in this project, I think what you said is exactly right. I think that if I had been more of an insider, I would have missed so much because I, I think I it, even coming even coming from sociology, right? There's I mean, I'm an outsider in, in many ways. Uh, the, the churchly communities and, and American Christianity especially have not have had kind of an ambivalent relationship with sociology because it's very different uh, than mm-hmm. even some of the more kind of ethnographic approaches that are taught in in seminaries different from uh, traditional kind of theological work and so I think that put me um, kind of set me up as as a bit of an outside other voice to start out with and then also you know the uh, the Mennonite tradition is is different enough that I, I had something to compare uh, to to what I was seeing in in cases like you know when I'm looking at the kind of styles and feminine expressions in in mm-hmm. the seminary communities is, is one example of this I think that um, so the Southern women are, are much more styled, much more um, attention to sort of like curling of hair and makeup and jewelry. Um, at yeah. Asbury, there's definitely femininity as an expectation as well, but it's much more muted and, and just shows up in different ways. And I think if I didn't have something else to compare those things to, I might have been tempted to think that, you know, one is maybe just more normal and natural and the other one is a deviation from that. Um, but But instead, I mean, I know it's a you know, it's there's 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 the comparison that you have, and you don't just see things through the lens of your own experience. So, yeah, I think that I don't know if I would have been able to write this project if I was a true insider, um, and certainly if I was if I was more of an outsider, I think it would have been a liability too. I mean, I needed to have to be able to speak the language um, of evangelical faith and tradition to know what questions to ask. I mean, I know I knew going into it that I was going to need to ask about godly manhood and godly womanhood because those are the those are the phrases that are used. And um, even in interpreting some of my own experiences in these spaces, like when I went into a lot of the male faculty members' offices, well, all of them at, at Southern, um, would be very overt and obvious about leaving the door open, right? And and I knew, I mean, I knew because I'm an insider, I knew what was going on, and I knew, knew to pay attention to that because I know about the Billy Graham rule and things like that. So, mm-hmm. um, yeah, for me and for this project, I don't know if that's always the, the sweet spot, but for me, get, being kind of both, both and, right, insider and outsider, um, really, really did help, I think. And now, a word from a sponsor. The Gravity Podcast is sponsored by the Gravity Formation Course, a 12-month cohort-based training in practical spiritual formation, where you'll learn to notice how God is already at work in your life so you can participate more fully in the life God shares with us. It's a discipleship process that goes beyond just gaining more knowledge and trying some new practices. In the Gravity Formation Course, we go below the surface of our lives so we can notice and name our deepest desires in God's presence and discern how God is at work in those desires to lead us toward holistic flourishing. More transformation, more life, more joy, more love. We've trained 
hundreds of people from all over the world in this formation framework, and it has helped many to have a sense of God at work in their lives and learn to be more at home in God's love. If you'd like to learn more, go to gravitycommons.com slash formation. All right, let's get back into our conversation. Well, I'd love to get into like some things that you say in the book because you use this word gender blind in the book. And I think our listeners are familiar with colorblind. Um, so could you just define that? Is it similar to just dealing with justice? And I guess then also tell us what's wrong with being gender blind exactly. Mm. Yeah, so I did use that word and it took me a while to come up with it. And I have mixed feelings about it for a number of reasons. But I did go with that language because I started seeing so many parallels to the colorblind approaches that white evangelicals have have tried so hard to apply to the problems of, of racial justice, both both in how it's constructed and also in, in its consequences. So when I say gender blindness, what I'm referring to is this impulse that I found in the egalitarian context at Asbury. Um, they really, really want to open doors to women, and, and they want for gender not to ever be something that holds a person back. Um, and so I think the the impulse and the inclination, the assumption is that if you just don't make a big deal out of gender, if we don't deal with it, right, because gendered categories have, have been used and are used at places like Southern uh, to prohibit people and women specifically from exercising agency and, and voice. And so I think the assumption is if we just take that off the table and don't allow gender to be something that holds people back in, in that kind of overt, explicit sense, that uh, we will have taken care of all of the inequalities, right? And so, and I, I think this is actually a beautiful goal, right? I, I think that the the desire for a, a social category like gender or race to not hold someone back, I, I think that's that's a, a lovely expectation and a lovely aspiration. Uh, but the problem is that gender is a thing, right? Whether or not we talk about it, whether or not we um, we, we lean into how it how it affects different people, and so uh, the the consequence of this, and you asked like, why is it a problem? Uh, the consequence is that women are able to enter into these spaces and, and pursue leadership and authority and ministry, but only insofar as they are able and willing to kind of cooperate with the, the norms and standards and processes that have been developed over, I mean, over decades, right, over time to suit men's needs and men's um, kind, of, kind of lives. And so what I found and just in, in, the, in the, the women that I spoke with in this community is that um, part of the consequence is that the women themselves really lacked language to know how to explain their experiences. The men were uh, finding all kinds of inspiration and, and enthusiasm for ministry that they were going to be entering into. Women were, they loved what they were doing and in, in a lot of cases really expressed a great deal of gratitude for, for even the gender blindness that, that they found there. But they also really struggled in in ways that they couldn't quite put their fingers on, uh, and they often felt like it was it was their problem, right? That they were the only one experiencing it. They didn't really have a sense that this is um, this was a pattern that was shared by others, and that there were reasons for it. And I, I saw a number of them kind of downgrading their ambitions, moving from kind of in an MDiv track to maybe a you know master's in Christian education or something, or uh, leaving seminary altogether because they were not convinced that they were in the right place. 
Um, and then, you know, men, too, are, are a part of this. And I, I think that I, I saw many of the male students, especially I spoke with, just kind of bewildered um, as to why women would continue to be dissatisfied, right? Because we've created this, this system where they're allowed to seek ministry and, and seek ordination. And we have women. I learned pre- my preaching class was taught by a woman. So why are they still frustrated and why are they um, creating this this dissension, right? And they they just had very little awareness of, of how to contextualize these, these different experiences. So I think gender blindness, it, it sounds good, but in one sense, I think, I mean, just to say it kind of more in, in churchy Christian terms, really ends in, in kind of a, a failure to to seek repentance. And and I think that's such a tragedy because it's such an, it's, there's an, always an opportunity for repentance. And if you're not interrogating uh, the social patterns that are the reality for people in a community, you're going to miss that opportunity. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, let's let's chat about um, these two seminaries I mentioned earlier in your research, Southern and Asbury. And I think for most of our listeners, I think we're pretty good at understanding complementarian and egalitarian and the differences that women maybe are afforded or freedoms, the differences that women are afforded in each of these groups. And I was struck in your introduction, this quote, somebody from Asbury said to you, um, listen carefully. This was a dude, right? <laughs> I mean, you didn't give Listen. away the gender. Care- you didn't give away the gender, but I'm just like, there is. N- yeah, this is totally a dude. Listen carefully. There are absolutely no barriers to women at Asbury Theological Seminary. Period. And I think, I think I, I, I'm not trying to uh, throw this guy under the bus or make an example of this guy. I think he actually believes this. And I think that a majority of us assume a space like Asbury that explicitly articulates uh, that women can have all kinds of leadership and pastoral responsibilities that men can, that that just, we can maybe just assume it as true. Um, and this is where I think I want to come back to the sociological tools, because I think that, it, and this is where I want to rope Seth in too, I think that that most of us don't have the tools to analyze and evaluate that statement, to decide if it's true or not. So yeah. what's, what's missing? And what does sociology bring? What did you bring? Seth, what, did you, what, did you, what do you notice that needs to be brought to evaluate that kind of statement? It's a good question. Seth, do you want to start with that and then I'll, I'll jump in? Yeah, maybe just piggyback a question onto that. So one of the things that you're you're looking at is the way that power works in these environments. And part of what your tools do is get beneath the surface of what's obvious. Um, and I found that if you really want to understand how power works, you, you kind of have to sink beneath sort of official theological positions, aspirational intentions, like best best desires of what you want to happen and pay attention to how bodies are ordered (laughs) and evaluated and described and sort of habituated like into different practices. Um, So there, that's part of the work that, that you're doing here in terms of method is getting beneath the obvious in terms of what, you know, especially what people say they want to happen and, and sort of sinking beneath the surface so what what were you noticing? Like as you maybe you can say a little bit about how how you got beneath the surface, and then once you did, what are you noticing about the similarities and differences between 
how bodies are are ordered and evaluated and habituated at Southern and Asbury. Mm. Yeah, so I mean, there's always a some kind of a disconnect between policy and practice, right? That's that's not new. That's something I think most of us recognize. And I think statements like like this one that I heard, um, it's just so reductionistic, right? Because it assumes that everything is is wrapped up in this kind of public. Uh, well, it, it assumes that everything is public, first of all, right? That that this like who does what in in public church life is all that in all that matters. Um, and it also separates the 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 possibility that you know the, the things that are said and that the theology or it's, it assumes that theology is what is practiced in in sort of embodied community life too. So there's there's a lot of assumptions that that are are behind I think that that statement. Um, but yeah, and, and Lisa, one, can I name one more? Yeah, that struck me that if there was a disconnect, clearly I would know about it. Yes. Yes. There and I there there is some centering or supremacy of my perspective without an appreciation that there may be data I don't have access to or I'm unaware of or I haven't accounted for. But that is that the the lack of curiosity also strikes me. Mhm. Yeah. Yeah, and I think that's actually probably key here because this is something that I found among um the students as well. This assumption that, you know, I if I if I you know do my homework, if I if I you know learn my Greek, if I learn how to understand the biblical context, learn my systematic theology, if I go through this process, I as a white American man have all the tools that I need to see everything and to speak authoritatively in, into everything. And, and I may be overstating that a little bit. There are certainly um, very you know humble listeners who are in this community too. But I think overall, this is the pattern that I, I kind of saw. And it's it's modeled by by some of the the leaders in, in the community too, which is, is certainly not innovated by this particular community, right? This is something that is a part of broader culture. It's a part of broader um, kind of church um, church cultures as, as well. Um, so, so yeah, I, I think um, one, one thing to, to, I think, recognize is the difference between theology and practice, which is kind of coming back to, to the original question, right? That, you know, once you, even, even if you have mastered the theology, even if you've mastered the tools um, that you have, other people are probably going to experience the same spaces in, in different ways. And this is something that is so hard for, for the, the men of this community to wrap their, their minds around. And, and some of it is the sort of like embodied, the messy realities of, of social life, um, how, how they are constructed in, in, this, in, in, this, in cases like this. And, and I think that the, um, even the curriculum I noticed a lot of the books that um, that are being assigned in, in, and again, not just Asbury, but in, in seminaries that are agents of tradition. They're, of course, assigning texts that are written by uh, people who think like them and who, in, in this tradition, tend to be you know, white American men or um, or even global Christians who are educated in white American institutions, right? And so there's there's kind of this sense of like this is the canon, um, and anything else is is other. And the faculty, again, there are, are women on faculty, but overall the majority um, are, are men, and there's a lot of mentoring and nurturing that goes on there. So, so really the, the processes, the, the maybe unintentional processes even more than the intentional ones, are really not 
encouraging these these students to see that I'm talking about the men specifically to see outside of their own experiences and so that I think accounts for um, some of the some of the comments that I got like like that one that I cited in in the introduction um, and I think so and I would never say though that theology doesn't matter and I think because I'm, I'm arguing for for all of the the value and the importance and the power of these cultural forms it does not mean that I, I don't think theology is important I mean it, it clearly clearly is um, but I think I would I would say that it's not the only thing that that matters um, and and I think so I found um, just so many patterns and so many embodied um, practices that are happening on on in this community specifically that, are centering men in ways that really have nothing to do at all with the the theology that um, this, this this man in the introduction was was referring to. They have nothing to do with whether or not uh, the community theoretically theologically supports women women in ministry. So um, that that kind of centering that cultural centering is something that I think um, you know like how how does sociology fit in here? Um, that's that's something that I don't think at least in this case this community wasn't attuned to because it didn't have the uh, kind of social scientific mentality. Yeah. Seth, what do you want to say to that? Because I feel like you've written too about this and I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. Yeah, I, I think it would be helpful for Lisa to just say some more about how male centricity shows up mm-hmm. in ways that were not obvious, especially to the, to the men at Asbury. I think, I mean, especially for our listeners, you know, starting to imagine how male centricity would show up in explicitly complementarian spaces, mm-hmm. maybe sort of makes sense. But um, yeah, so if you would say more about how in in explicitly egalitarian spaces male centricity shows up, because I think like, the way that power works, especially the kind that like dominates and controls the bodies of historically marginalized people like women, it it works because it's veiled, (laughs) right? Because it's cloaked. Um, And it works even when I have the best of intentions to, to honor and empower women. So yeah, say more about how you noticed male centricity showed up uh, in explicitly egalitarian places. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, I have so many stories about this. Um, so I started realizing it first when I, I often spent time in kind of a public um, student center space that had a, a fireplace and it was close to the gym and it was just kind of a good place to you know write uh, write field notes after chapel or after after an interview. And I spent a lot of time in there. And at one point, I got really frustrated because I was trying to get my work done. And all of these students were, of course, hanging out around me. And I often was just sitting close by to a table with two or three men who were just talking extremely loud and, 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 you know, just filling the space with, you know, sometimes they're talking about their, uh, their work and their ambitions for ministry, talking about, you know, broad, like, how are we going to solve the secularization problem? And sometimes it was, uh, but sometimes it was just, you know, what we're doing over the weekend, but I, I could hear this um, just really loudly, and, it, and what it felt like um, just just kind of taking over this space. And and you know, my, my initial Im- impulse was was just to be annoyed by it. But I finally realized, like, oh, this is this is important. This is what's going on here because there were women yeah. in spaces too. Um, and I, I had a, have a story in the book of how you know I, I, this this group of men was like all the way across the room from me, and I was hearing their really loud, obnoxious conversation. 
And then I noticed that there were a couple of women who were also in the space, but they were just very quiet. They were working. Um, they left the table and they would just very carefully and quietly slide the, the chair back underneath to kind of gent- gently manage the space. And um, and I, I should say in, in defense of the seminary students, there are plenty, again, of plenty of um, thoughtful listening men who, who would not have, have done this um, without, without knowing what was going on. But but I saw this. I mean, it was a, it was a pattern in what I saw. And so I think the space is like this, and this is a public space, right? But I also saw it, or I heard it more, I guess, from from women students when they would talk about their experiences in classrooms. I had one woman who was um, just very impressive, very um, very smart, um, articulate, confident. Just, I mean, clearly a born leader, and she's, I'm, I'm sure, a, a great pastor. And she was saying, you know, I'm used to being in male-dominated spaces. I went to a, a secular college. I was in a, I don't know what she studied, but I was in a program that had more men than women in it. So I was, I'm always the one to, you know, raise my hand and lead conversation, no problem. And then she said, but since I came here, I don't ever raise my hand in class. And I don't ever contribute to conversations. And I can't figure out why that is. And she just seemed bewildered by this and, and unable to articulate what was going on. And I think as as I um, watched, I watched a few classroom spaces happen. Um, and but part of it is that again, so many of the the faculty members are men, and so they're going to identify with uh, the male students and kind of look to them for for the you know broad great ideas to to come out of. Um, and and I think, but I think the whole space, and even even the, the intellectual space and the physical space, is just created in a way where men feel comfortable and confident. They have these role models that have the kind of families they imagine having, uh, the kind of careers that they want to have. They they're getting all of the nurture and the mentoring that they need to really be inspired to reach their goals. Uh, many of them have families coming behind them that are applauding their um, their desire to enter ministry, and so this. Whole whole space is really created for them, um, of course, by design, right? Because that's what seminaries are supposed to do. Um, and women, again, kind of because of the gender blindness, are, are welcomed into those spaces, but they have such different experiences, um, not, not only in the spaces themselves, but even I, I talk about being centering, uh, being centered by, by calling um, these, the backgrounds that these students come in with, um, really the men um, often are, are affirmed for their choice to enter ministry. A, a number of them kind of framed it as, when I asked them about their calling and their choice to enter ministry, um, sort of set it up as, this is a sacrifice. I could have been an engineer. Um, I could have been a doctor, but I made this choice as a sacrifice. Um, but for women, it's it's often seen as kind of an ambitious choice, uh, right? If you're going into ministry, this is something that you are wanting to do. And, and of course, you know, that kind of sets them up um, for more more suspicions of of their motives and motivations. So um, those are just two examples. I also talk a little bit about, actually extensively about how how marriage uh, helps facilitate men's um, trajectory toward vocational yes. ministry, um, and and makes it harder for women in in some ways. So there's a lot going on, and a lot of these things. I mean, all of these things really are are cultural and really are outside of at least the theological stories that this community is telling. Yes, I was just listening to a secular podcast called Smartless. I'm not. I'm not trying to uh, promote other park podcasts, but this is a secular podcast. Jason Bateman, Will Arnett, Sean Hayes, and they were interviewing John Krasinski's wife, also an actress, Emily Blunt, and she was talking about. Um, she's a great actress. She was talking about how people will approach her on set 
and ask her, now, what are you doing with the kids? Like, where are the kids? Where are the kids when you're acting? Um, and her and these three guys were reflecting on how the fact that she gets this question all the time. And Jason will both have children and have never been asked that on set, right? So there's a sense in which, even though, like Hollywood, probably even more so maybe than uh, Asbury, is really dialed into, we don't want to make any missteps on, you know, that would upset feminist people or people who want equality. But there's still this latent kind of cultural thing that exists where, where I need to maybe subtly, like low-key, kind of be like, shouldn't you be at home with the kids? <laughs> you know, but not to the dads. And I think there are like 10,000 artifacts like this that just sort of live... I don't know. I don't know how you describe it, Seth or Lisa. Like sometimes I've, I heard somebody talk about it as it's common sense. It lives at the level of just things we assume that are common sense. But I, I don't know how you, how do you describe these artifacts and how they get into us? I mean, I would say it's culture, right? That's what culture is. It, it normalizes mm. things to the point where we can't see them or can't identify them. They're kind of the ruts that, um, that we just sort of assume. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. One of the one of the things that I saw in some of the research that I did <clears throat> is that these things are are um are sort of disciplined into us. <laughs> uh but in ways that it's not coming through what's taught in the classroom. So for instance, I was looking at um specific denomination one uh, mine actually Anglican and so liturgy is a big part of what characterizes our denomination. And completely apart from what was officially taught or not taught, our bodies were ordered by the liturgy <laughs> and, and the way that space was designed and whose bodies were honored in that space. Like, this is all nonverbal. And so, I'm, I'm being sort of disciplined, habituated into a way of relating to other people that I'm not, I'm not even, like, consciously aware that, that I'm, I'm sort of absorbing these intuitions about what my relationships with other people are supposed to be like, about how I'm supposed to take up space or not take up space. Mm. So I'm wondering if that was showing up in, in your research too, Lisa. Mm. Yeah, I think hmm, one of the spaces that I think is is really important, and I, I think I, I mean it in more of a metaphorical space than, than what you're describing, um, Seth, but I think that the home environment is is really key and symbolic in in this community because I think a lot of these women, um, to to use their language, have been freed for ministry, but they have been not been freed from the expectations of kind of domesticated femininity that come both from the evangelical subculture and and from broader society. So I did find that. Even even the couples, so there there is, and I I might need to mention that there is some complementarian male headship belief that is under the surface at Asbury when it comes to um, even even people who are adamant that women should be equal to men in ministry. Um, there's there's still some have a sense of male headship in marriage. So there's that, but even among those who insist on egalitarian marriages and and, and you know went on and on about how they try to to equitably uh, share childcare and and household duties um, it's very clear that the women are responsible for household management 
Uh, they're the ones who are you know, making the schedules, who are planning the, the, the birthday parties, who are doing, doing these things. And, and so I think that assumption that, that this domesticated space is the space that women are in charge of and responsible for, um, you know, I, I didn't observe these, these students in their, in their private lives. So I think that's where, I, like, it would have been really interesting to see how they inhabit uh, those, those more, more private spaces. Um, but I, I think, yeah, I, I, it would be interesting to look at, at different traditions, too. And I know the Anglican tradition actually is, is represented at Asbury uh, quite a bit. But those, those rituals, those, those kind of embodied liturgies, um, sometimes they're formal and sometimes they're informal. But they're, they're often are gendered elements to them. We'll be right back. Do you have that one piece of clothing you keep going back to no matter how full your closet is? Having a versatile, high-quality favorite feels great, but having a whole closet full of them feels even better. American Giant puts the quality, durability, and comfort they're famous for into everything you need for your spring days. From premium t-shirts and jeans to lightweight French terry joggers and their legendary best hoodie ever. Whether you're dressing for work, the gym, or happy hour, you're sure to find your next closet go-to from American Giant. And it's all made in America and designed to last a lifetime. Get 20% off your first order at American-Giant.com with code STAPLE20 at checkout. That's American-Giant.com, code STAPLE20. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match, with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Let's get back to the show. Yeah, I think I'm thinking about how even the classroom can be like a ritual space. Hmm. Like there, there are certain kinds of performances that happen in the classroom and, and, and rhythms and um, ways of speaking and sort of being present in that space and whose bodies are, are, are normative in that space. I think that's part of, part of where my question was coming from. If, if, yeah. if even that the classroom space, because, you know, what I'm thinking is like you've got this architecture um, uh, architecture of education, of theological education um, that has been designed in male-centric spaces and so even though sort of the, um, the official standing uh, in between uh, in, from Southern to Asbury is different in terms of like what they believe about gender inclusion, the, the social architecture that characterizes education might still be the same. Mm. And so even in, even in, maybe even in, I'm wondering, like even in classroom spaces, like, like the dynamics there, it's like ordered according, ritualized according to male centricity, even though the language is a little bit different. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, I wish that I would have had more of a chance to sit in on many different classrooms so I could have made some comparisons, for example, between uh, the classrooms that are, are, are led by women faculty members. Uh, that would have been, I think, interesting. Um, I do have one story, and this isn't about a classroom space as, as much as it is a, a public um, kind of worship s- space, um, but there there is this one story that I heard from a a woman on on faculty who was describing um, a chapel service, and chapel is another one of those spaces that is. And I, I did spend more time in in chapel service, but but very scripted, right? And um, what Asbury tries to do is kind of just plug women into that that script, right? You're welcome to teach and lead and serve and preach, uh, but here's how we do it, right? And so this this faculty member was telling me a story of um, a woman who was in I, presumably an MDiv program on on track to to become to, to enter vocational ministry. And uh, the chapel speaker speaker that morning she described as a big powerful man with a big powerful sermon, right? And there's this you know the the elevated stage with with the podium and the platform there. And uh, she said that this this woman. Um, a student came to her afterwards just just weeping and in tears and she said I'm leaving seminary this is clearly not what I'm called to do because I could never do that um, and I, I think that um, you know I, I didn't I didn't witness this I didn't observe it but I have seen these these performative um, sort of sort of things that happen in in these public spaces and um, and I, you know versions of that happen in the classroom too certainly um, where there's this gregarious kind of confident um, this 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 tradition of preaching I think in in some traditions more than others but certainly lends itself to a, even like sometimes a hyper masculine ideal. Um, um, whether that's articulated or not, and and so just just the fact that women are are comparing themselves to to these these performances, I think, um, and and the spatial awareness, like space space matters, and when it's done in that sacred space of, for example, a chapel service, and I think to some degree too, in in a classroom, um, it, it can be powerful and it can be really disconcerting. Yeah, I, I, I'm struck too by how often. Um, we talked at the beginning about how your outsider but adjacent status mm-hmm. led uh, helped you maybe see these stained glass ceilings easier than people who've they've, for whom they've always been there for. Um, and I'm I'm wondering, uh, Christy, as you're listening, like you're somebody who I think has gone on a journey from growing up in a stained glass ceiling environment, but then what happens is over time, I don't know how you. The metaphor may break down, but you keep bumping your head against the ceiling, and eventually you have to come to see it. And then once you see it, then things bother you that haven't bothered you before. Can you talk a bit about, Christy, like the process? Because I'm, and I want to pivot from what you're saying, Christy, to like, how do guys see this? But I want to hear a bit about how how women who grow up in these environments come to see it. Yeah. It's interesting, because I feel like my journey mm-hmm. continues, uh, even in... Um, now seeing some things in a healthy, healthier way yeah. um, and how it emotionally impacts me. When I see a man doing something that kind of breaks that ceiling uh, for women and like opens things up and, and allows women, invites them in in a different way than maybe they've seen before. Anyway, all this to say, it can bring me to tears sometimes. Mm. Um and so even things like I'm preaching um, this Sunday and my boss was like, hey, this sounds kind of silly, but like I want to make sure you're comfortable with the podium that's up there. And I'm like a foot shorter than him. 
And so they're like going to take that one off and give me like a shorter one so that I still have something so I don't feel so tiny behind this ginormous thing. And that is like really thoughtful and made me feel like, oh my gosh, okay, I didn't have to tell you that I need to wear high heels that day because that's what I normally do. Like as a woman, we we figure out a way to be in a man's kind of world in that. I don't know. Mm. And so all this to say, um, I've been really grateful that even specifically in the last six months to have uh, over and over these examples of someone being really thoughtful and, and seeing uh, a more holistic picture. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, Christy. I, so I'm hearing you say it's not only the hurts or harms or marginalization that stirs you and that you notice, but it's people who see things bef- that you maybe haven't spoken to them about or people who are doing things that stir in you. Yes, this is this is helping me, helping this space be more hospitable for me. Yeah, as absolutely. A woman. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So, <clears throat> oh, go ahead. Uh, did you have more to share there, Christy? No, I just was going to ask Lisa because I, I mean, I think Matt and Seth, you do a really good job of this, but I'm curious to hear Lisa, like, what are some things like for men who see these dynamics that we're talking about, um, what are some things that they can do to continue to notice and even help change these stained glass ceilings? Mm. Oh, yeah, that's a big question. Um, and I think, you know, coming out of this this data, it, it, I'm tempted to be kind of discouraged <laughs> about the possibilities because the men that I, I spoke with, by and large, were just not equipped to see these things. They weren't, I mean, they weren't even equipped to see their own experiences in context, let alone start mm. really asking questions and wanting to hear the answers about women's experiences. So um, I'm not sure that I can give any, any great answers from the data ex- itself, except to say that there were exceptions, and which to me is really good news. Um, and in these exceptions, um, and I found them at both institutions, which is interesting. Even even at Southern, there were were some men who were uh, clearly clearly listening and and clearly wanting to to push past what was what they saw happening around them. Um, and I, so I don't know, I, just looking at the patterns that I saw there, I, I think these were men who had experienced the margins themselves for one reason or another. Um, some of them were gay. Some of them had daughters or wives, um, prob- probably sisters too, who um, who they were close to and, and had walked a difficult path with. Uh, so I think that that kind of experience and exposure, recognizing that one's own experience doesn't um, is, isn't all that matters, I, I think is is helpful. Um, but one thing that I really did see in the, a pattern, I guess, in in these kind of resistors uh, was just that they were listeners and and I think willing to hold tension. Um, so I guess I would say, you know, by way of you know better practices, if if men are wanting to make some progress, I, I think listening to to other voices um, of people who experience the world differently ask women about their experiences in the church. And, and I would say, too, like, if, if that's something that you want to do, be, be ready uh, for women to not know what to say, right? There's a lot of um, 
Again, a lot of the women that I spoke with really struggled to articulate their experiences, um, and women have different experiences, right? So, you know, just because you hear one set of stories isn't is not definitive. But, um, but I do think that listening to each other is—I mean, it sounds so obvious and and so just simple, but. Um, that sort of inquisitive nature of, of wanting to know what else is out there and not being, um, not needing to wrap your mind around all of it or make it make sense with your experience, I think is, is one good place to start. Mm. Listen carefully. There are absolutely no bad listeners of men in Christianity <laughs> in the U.S., period. <laughs> uh. Oh my. Let's let that sarcasm uh, and any. I apologize for the triggering. I just, I, I think, so here's the deal. I think that um, we have to specifically name this culture to change it. It's not going to change on its own. Guys who mean well, like me, make tons of mistakes, and it won't go away without naming and opposing and dismantling and doing concrete acts. I, I really think, I really believe that. We can't pray this away, right? Um, because it doesn't exist on the level of interior motive and intention. It, 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 and that's why this sociological research is so important. Lisa, it helps us see things we can't see so that we can then become people who uh, actually build something different. And I'll just say, like, as a, you know, as a white dude who's a pastor, I, I don't, I'm not really competent at that. <laughs> like, I, that's not something that fits my wheelhouse, but your book is a gift to us so that we can, for instance, learn what we do to inhibit listening, learn what people are saying and how we react to that that makes sharing uh, less likely, and, and know the things that make for peace. Yeah. Um, really, really, your book is a call to the church to uh, take seriously the wisdom that's from above in James 3. It's, it's willing to yield. It doesn't have partiality. You know, it's peaceable. It's gentle. It's open to reason. And these are the kinds of things that I think uh, our culture creates uh, obstacles and barriers to that. Your book is a gift because it, it, it gives people who don't want to be and do what they're doing, it gives them a window into that and says, you need to change. Otherwise, you're perpetuating things that you explicitly say you don't want to do. Mm -hmm. and, and I think that's a gift. I think anybody, including myself, who gets reactive or triggered by that, like being told explicitly, you're doing, what you're doing isn't helpful, please change, is such a gift. Mm -hmm. And so your book is a gift, Lisa. Your, your study and your research is a gift. I'm so encouraged that you're doing this. And I just want to ask, like, have you received pushback on this? Like, are people's feelings hurt? Are people responding in ways that aren't helpful? You know, I expected a lot more of that than I've gotten, and maybe it's still coming. I don't know. <laughs> but we'll, we'll see, right? Um, I, I mean, it's hard. It's hard to hear these things. And, and I think... 
You know, I think sociology sometimes gets a bad rap for being the discipline that just complains about everything and shows everyone what's wrong with yes. the world, right? But I, that's not actually how I experience it. And and so thank you for that, those very kind words about the book. I, I think, I mean, that that is my hope, that that is exactly what people will take away from it. And I think that for me, the practice of sociology, I mean, it, it is, it is you know, opening up things that are that are hidden. And sometimes those things are not pleasant. But uh, but the hopeful part is like once we see where things are going wrong, then we know what to do to, to try to address them, right? And that yes. um, that to me is just is so exciting. And especially in this case, um, you know, it's it's not it's not the fundamental you know, doctrines of of the Christian faith. It's not the Bible that's the problem. It's the cultural tools that are being applied to it. So I yes. actually am feeling just so optimistic coming off of this project. Um, I don't have the answers necessarily. I mean, we've, we've started to kind of talk through what, you know, maybe next steps here. But those those answers need to come from from community and from a multiplicity and diversity of voices. But I think as we get little glimpses into where things are, are breaking down, I, I just do get excited because that means, you know, we have a whole set of tools that we can um, can can use to start, you know, start doing better. And, and I think, and I, I do appreciate the, the praise for the book, but I would also say that, I mean, my, my voice is partial too. This is not the final word on what's going on here. I, I write from a particular lens. I, I write, um, I mean, we talked about my, my religious background. I also write as, I mean, I'm a fair, have a fairly feminine affect. I, the, the traditional kind of construct of femininity happens to work fairly well for me. Um, so I see it through that lens. Like I'm literally going to go home and bake Christmas cookies and sew Christmas presents, and it's going to be the best part of my week. Um, so I'm, I'm really not a threat to traditional <laughs> notions of femininity. But that's me. That's my story. And there are other, uh, other women and men who are going to experience life in the world and church differently. And and I think that part of this process of, of wanting to do better and wanting yeah. uh, to repent and, and lean into a more full and robust articulation of faith is being willing to hold our experiences both both confidently and, and loosely as, as we try to honor others' voices. Yeah, Lisa, I just want to put an, like an underline under that. <laughs> this, is the, this is the sort of like, um, like second part of the gift that your book is. I mean, you're you're naming how gender and power are working in ways that we need to reckon with. But the other part is is the sort of like the method part. The 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 tools of sociological analysis that are not just uh not just technical, but they actually are are modes that can help us repent. Mm. I think that's what I what I hope that our listeners and then people who engage with your book can walk away with too, is that taking a posture in which we are both open to receiving the kind of words that come from this kind of analysis, but are able to sort of ourselves lean into this kind of analysis actually helps open our eyes to the kinds of things that we need to see in order to repent. Because mm. if we if we want to repent, we have to be able to name reality. <laughs> And and these are tools that help us mm-hmm. get access to that, and it's it's so important. Mm. Yep. Yes, the book again is called Stained Glass Ceilings: How Evangelicals Do Gender and Practice Power. Even the subtitle is provocative, I think, for us to to ask questions. Lisa, it's been a pleasure having you today. Where can people um, interact with you? Are you are you out active online, and what are you working on now in your research? 
Yes. So I'm kind of an ambivalent social media user, but I am on on all of the big Facebook, Instagram, and and a little bit on Twitter. Um, so you can find me there. Uh, website is lisaweaverswartz.com. It's a good place to start. Um, the next project is, is kind of a pivot. It's a co-authored work that I'm working on with a historian who I happen to be married to. Um, and it takes place <laughs> in the, uh, in the Southeast Asian context. We've done, um, several, several ethnographic trips, uh, looking at faith-based responses to human trafficking over there, which is quite, quite an industry. Uh, the, the anti-trafficking industry itself has, has quite a story. Uh, turns out there's some gender and power mixed into that too. And, um, a lot of transnational connections between uh, conservative Protestants and other religious groups in the U.S. Um, and, and a lot of the kind of NGO, nonprofit, humanitarian work that goes on in that context. So uh, working on that in the spring and hopefully get a book manuscript out on that before too long. Sweet. Lisa, it was great to have you. Seth, I'm really glad you were able to join us too for this conversation. Um, we look forward to chatting with you in the future, Lisa. Take care. Mm, thank you. I have so many thoughts and questions and things swirling around in my head. Mm -hmm. Like there are so many examples, like I started thinking as, as we were talking of ways that I've seen me kind of be in a male dominated environment, even in a church that's egalitarian and Mm -hmm. like super supportive and like, um, just stupid things of like the microphone. When I preach, I can't wear a dress. Right. I got to have a pocket to put that stupid little thing in it. Right. Or, you know, I've told you, I've said this on the podcast before, but like when I have preached people saying something about what I'm wearing and not about what mm. I'm saying or being in a meeting and feeling like all the men are talking and mm-hmm. kind of feeling intimidated, even though I'm I'm not generally an intimidated person, but I feel like sometimes I need to be invited into those places. Yeah. I, Anyway, I just – it's so interesting that it, all these things are coming to mind of, yeah, I experience those things often. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yes, Christy. Uh, you, you remember when we – you and I went to New York City last year and we spoke at that yeah. little conference. We spoke oh, at a yeah. conference called Half the Church, which was about women in ministry. And we were asked to speak um, – one no, of us. You were asked to speak. Well, we. I was asked to speak. And you okay. were so kind to invite me in because that <laughs> it was. I'm saying that because it was a big deal to me. Yeah. Of like, you're not just saying that you're supportive of me. You're actually like now like really putting your neck out there for me to also be on stage with you and speak. Yes. That's a big yes, deal. Yes. Um. There's a lot of things to say about that, including one of us saying a swear word, and I'll let you figure out who the hell that was but but <laughs> but i asked i didn't i didn't say this christy for you to like uh, i appreciate that but i i brought it up to say um this is an example of me not reckoning with my power as the leader of gravity and you as a podcast host and my friend and the gender thing and so i asked you hey i would rather i want you to come to this we'll pay for you to come and I want you to speak about this because I think you have things to say that I can't say that I don't know. And so then we worked on this message together. And do you remember Do you remember how that – so we worked on this message together and I kept feeling a little frustrated because I felt like, well, Chrissy has so much to say and she keeps asking me what to say. 
And I'm like, I just want you to say something. And then she's like, well, I'll just do this little part. And we went back and forth and back and forth. And, and, and I felt frustrated because I wanted you to do more. And you were trying to figure out how to fit into what I wanted. And do you remember yes. what you said to me when we were working no. that morning before we spoke? No, tell me. Remind me. You said, this is, and I, and I think I just said something to you like, I want you to tell me what you want to say, and that will help us like craft this message together. And you said to me, I have worked on messages with guys so, so many times, and it's, I've never, ever been asked what I wanted to say. I've just been told, here's what I want you to do. Yeah. And here's how I want you to fit into this. So I, I share that to um, just say, that didn't occur to me. I didn't know that. Mm. I had no idea yeah. that for, if it's just, dude, if it's just Seth and I, you know, and, and we're working on a message, it's like, I don't, Seth doesn't have any problem being like, well, here's what I want to say. He's not looking, he's not looking at me to like give him permission or room, but the, right. th- that's part of, I think this gendered power thing is that yeah. I don't understand how gendered power works in your life, Christy, uh, unless, unless we run into a, a glass wall and we have a conversation and, and we listen to each other. Well, and even like I told you, I've had like happy tears of seeing this played out in a beautiful, good yeah. way. And recently um, I was in a meeting and I'm preaching at this church and and in past environments I've been in when I've had to preach or be on stage, I've actually had to practice preaching in front of my boss. And so Whoa. at this... Wow. Yeah. Wait, and wait, so wait, 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 before they, I'm sorry, Christy, <laughs> wait, before they let you get in the pulpit, you had to go in their office or somewhere else and, and present the sermon to them beforehand? Correct. The week before I had to preach just to my boss and then he would tell me things that needed to change. And so now I'm in this <laughs> new environment. Sorry, that, I've used my one swear for the podcast, that is <laughs> Horse excrement. And and Seth, has that ever happened to you? Have you Have ever you had read to preach in front of somebody? No. Well, yeah. not not in the way you're describing. No. With that edit button? No. no. Not not like that. No. Yeah. But well, this is this, this is, is how it works. What, this is how it works. And so in this new environment that I'm in, I'm in this preaching meeting and I'm, you know, preaching. And so at the end of the meeting, I say, uh, do I need to preach to you this sermon before I actually am on stage on Sunday? And my boss looked at me, and oh my goodness, in compassion and kindness, he looked at me and he was like, Chrissy, you don't have to preach to me because you're new, and you don't have to preach to me because you're a woman. Mm. And I just started crying mm. because it was in there, because the last, you know, how 25 years, I've, I've been like, prove it, prove it. Like, let me... I don't know. It just, it was beautiful and really kind in this picture of, of, you know, I think what we're talking about, like when someone had, when he, my boss now sees like, oh, he just speaks kindness and truth and like helps me also see where I'm kind of holding some of that, uh, male centered environment. Yes. Mm -hmm. And, and Mm -hmm. for you, for him to for him to grace you with a thing that is just ordinary and common for Seth and I elicits tears from you. Yes. Mm-hmm. But Seth and I wouldn't, it wouldn't even register. Mm-hmm. And that's, 
that is a artifact of how culturally embedded this stuff is and the toll, the emotional, relational, physical, spiritual labor it yeah. takes to simply show up and, and quote, try to be a woman in ministry. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, gosh, Seth, Seth what, yeah. are you, what, what, what are you stirring with from this conversation? Uh, either things you heard that were really imp- helpful for you or questions that the, uh, this conversation leaves you with. Yeah, so two two things. One is, and I think this was sort of like implicit in Lisa's work, and it sort of gestures in this direction, but the the kinds of things that disrupt male centricity, the the kinds of things that actually break apart the the ungodly power that male centricity works inside of congregations or theological education environments, the kinds of things that disrupt that are already there. Hmm. They're like, they're already in the systems. They're already in our churches. They're already in the theological systems. It's just a matter of tending to those um, disruptive, apocalyptic, in the good sense of the word, energies that can break it apart. So an example of what I mean is just like, like Christy, like the fact that that you are um, leading the fact that you are, are preaching like is part of the energy that has the power to disrupt male centricity. It could become tokenism too, but it has the power to disrupt male centricity. And like, I, when I've done research in this, this is what surprised me is how powerful representation was. Mm-hmm. Like I, yes. as a dude, I just like, I did, it's not like I, I just, I underestimated it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And and hearing from women like how something broke loose, how they moved from basically being discouraged to like having a new imagination for for their own way to live into God's calling on their life, how it broke loose just through representation was was a eureka for me. Yeah. Yeah. So that that that's that's the thing. And I have so, there's so much more to say about that. And the other thing yeah. is just to say that like for, for Matt, for me and you, for other, especially white dudes like us, mm-hmm. like we just still have a lot of work to do. <laughs> I just, I just want to own that. Like I've, I've been doing work in this area f- for a while now and I still get this wrong. Yeah. So, so what's so key to this, and this is part of Lisa's book is like, my intentions are good. Mm. But there are still ways that I extend and propagate male centricity in ways that I don't understand, mm. and it's and and me feeling the hard like it's hard, and so me feeling how hard that is is okay. Like in terms of like I've got work to do, and that work is hard, and it's going to be a kick to the gut sometimes. But that's holy work. <laughs> I think women have work too. And I'm just going to say this because this is me. But like when we've, when we've been hurt, when there have been things that have kind of happened and, and caused trauma, it for me, it makes me then want to be silent. And I think that mm. like when we are in relationship with people, when we're in environments where they're open, they're compassionate, they're curious, they're asking questions, they want to grow, we have to open our mouth and we have to share. Even right now. Right now in my head, I'm already double guessing, oh, I shouldn't have talked about that whole preaching thing because what if somebody from my other church listens to that and then like, it, like oh, I should have just been quiet. 
Mm. And I think we have to like actually speak up so that people can see another way to be and to live. Yep. I agree, Christy. It's been women who have broken the unwritten rule that they can't say things that would make men look bad. Yeah. Even even on this podcast, even to me. Yes. I mentioned once feeling uncomfortable being a man, and the woman we were interviewing said, that's good for you. Mm-hmm. Yep. And that is a transgressive, scandalous thing. But it needs to happen more. Uh, I, we, need to, we need to wrap up this outro, but I was reflecting on what are, what are some ways to reveal male centrality and why that's, and why that's a bad thing. And I was thinking, um, I was talking to a friend yesterday who was a black pastor at a white megachurch. <clears throat> and he, they hired him to be the urban ministry pastor. Um, and eventually he left to go uh, plant an inner city church in, in the urban area was primarily black. Uh, and we were talking, and it, the thought occurred to me, like, you know what would never happen at a white megachurch? That they would hire my friend Dexter as the senior pastor, and then hire a white guy as the suburbs pastor. Right. And you know what would never happen, Christy, in most churches? That they would hire Christy Pinley as the senior pastor and your boss as men's ministry pastor. Right. And it's, it's a very similar kind of scandalous thought that, that breaks unwritten rules but reveals the centrality of things like whiteness mm-hmm. and things like masculinity. And, and I think we need more of these... I don't know, little bombs that help us see stuff, you know, help us see the things we can't see. Mm-hmm. <sighs> so good. Hmm. Well, Seth, uh, I know this is your first outro with us, but we usually end the outros with a joke. <laughs> do you have okay. a joke for I, us? <laughs> uh, Seth, do you have a joke for us? I don't have, I don't have a joke. I just have a... I'm, pre- I'm prepared. This is good. Normally you catch me off guard. Seth, I... I don't have, I don't have a joke. I know you, you're you're normally you making jokes. You like, do a lot of at me. Mm, <laughs> yeah, is is it at you? I mean, I guess you're yeah, around. It is. Well, <laughs> this is um this is more of like a grammar pro tip. Okay, can we end okay. with a grammar pro tip? Yeah, sure. All right, Seth. A colon can completely change the meaning of a sentence. Okay, for instance, Jane ate her friend's sandwich. Hmm? Or, Jane ate her friend's colon. You see? <laughs> you see, Seth? How that works? Yeah, just uh, grammar. I'm learn- learning. <laughs> I love I love Seth's face right now. He's like, I don't know what to do with you guys. Oh, I, oh, I, I know what to do with Matt. <laughs> Uh, all right, listener, we'll uh, we'll catch you next time. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Gravity Leadership Podcast. If you're finding it helpful or enjoyable, we'd love it if you'd tell your friends about it. Ratings and reviews online also help others find the podcast. And don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss an episode. And you can join our gravity community online for free at gravityleadership.com slash join you'll get our latest content delivered straight to your inbox as well as our email most fridays with curated links to articles we find interesting and helpful 
To join us, go to gravityleadership.com slash join. Our podcast is produced by Ben Sternke and Matt Tebby. Aaron Sternke edits and mixes the show. You can check out his work at aaronsternke.com. We'd love to hear from you. To record a question or comment for us, go to gravityleadership.com slash message and click the start recording button. You can also email us at podcast at gravityleadership.com. Catch you next time. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com podcast. That's Indeed.com podcast. Terms and conditions apply.